Awesome. Thanks. Hi, everybody. I'm Melissa C. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. I'm in New York. And um, so we're going to talk tonight about steps eight and nine, which, um, you know, aren't the favorite for most people, if that's the step that it's like, um, I think it's a pretty common step where people um, wander off from this program. Um, because there's, it's hard work now. You know, it's like before this, um, the work that we've done was really about getting right with ourselves, right? And now we're gonna get right with other people. And that's, that's tough stuff, you know, that's, um, and what I, what I wanna say really before I like jump into it is um, there's a reason why the steps are in order. And there's a reason why it's at eight and nine that we do this and not at two, right? And not at three. Um, because there's some, there's some real work that has to be done before we get to this point. Um, and I think especially, you know, when I've stumbled on amends, um, even on like current amends, something comes up. Um, and the stumbling block that many of us have is fear of what's going to happen when like the consequences, you know, whether fear of what are they gonna think of me or fear of what am I gonna have to do next, you know, or, um, and it's usually um, fear of like the outcome of this amend. And I think it's why it's really important that we have a good solid third step. Because if you've got a really solid third step you've decided you're not in charge of results, that results are up to God, that our job is to stay near to him, right? And perform his work well. And then he will take care of us. We will be safe. And that's really, you know, um, I think that's an important thing that often um, when people drift away at steps eight and nine, I think it's because there was something wrong with their third step. They really hadn't taken their third step entirely or they hadn't retaken their third step. Step three is one I kind of, re not kind of, I revisit daily, daily. I revisit my third step where I basically say, God, you're God and Melissa, you're not, right? Um, all right, so let's jump into eight and nine. Uh, eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. And nine, made direct amends wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. And um, I'm going to be really focusing a lot on the AA 12 and 12, um, back and forth, but I think it's a really, it's a rich text. Um, and in the AA 12 and 12 on page 77, it says, that steps eight and nine are concerned with personal relations. First, we take a look backward and try to discover where we have been at fault. And next, we make a vigorous attempt to repair the damage we've done. And third, having thus cleaned away the debris of the past, we consider how with our newfound knowledge of ourselves, we may develop the best possible relations with every human we know. So yeah, this is the steps. These are the steps that are really involved with other people, with getting right with other people. 
And if you notice, steps eight and nine are not focused on what other people have done. Like that's what your inventory was for, right? The beginning of your inventory was for that. But by the time you finished your inventory, you found out it wasn't even about that anyway. Um, but in steps eight and nine, we're attempting to repair the damage we've done. We're looking to clean up our past. And we do this for the reason so that we can have the best possible relations with everyone we know. Not just the people we love, right? and want to continue to have in our lives, but we really are looking to have the best possible relations with everybody. And that's very different from what I once thought. I thought that um, if I didn't like the person or if I didn't want a relationship with them or if they didn't want one with me, then there was no point in making an amend. Like, why would I do that? And, and if they possibly did something to me, well, no way would I have considered making a mess. It was like, I can't, they did something worse to me. Um, and the AA 12 and 12 goes on to say, this reopening of emotional wounds, some old, some perhaps forgotten, and some still painfully festering, will at first look like a purposeless and pointless piece of surgery. But if a willing start is made, then the great advantages of doing this will so quickly reveal themselves that the pain will be lessened as one obstacle after another melts away. So it doesn't seem to make sense that opening up an old wound or poking at a current pain is gonna bring me peace. And yet we do find that there are great advantages when we do this and that the pain lessens and the problems begin to disappear. You know, I think about it like taking off the Band-Aid and really cleaning out the wound. It might sting, but if I just keep the Band-Aid on and, and I don't examine what's there and there's an infection, there's something very real and festering, it's not going to get better, right? It's going gonna, it's gonna to spread. It's going to cause more harm. And what I found out is that the things that I have been so afraid of, were not nearly as scary in reality. It wasn't as scary. When I imagined what was underneath that Band-Aid was not as bad as when I opened it up and let the light of God shine in. Um, and what it seems like, the more I avoid things, the more they seem to grow, right? The longer I take, the more I avoid it, it gets worse, it gets worse. You know, and the thing that I always come back to whenever the steps call on me to do things that I believe are unnecessary or too difficult, well, again, is my third step is that I decided that I'm not really in charge of knowing what's unnecessary. And I've decided that I was going to put my faith and trust in God um, because God can help me do hard things. But the other significant fact is this. I got no other options. I have no other choice. For me, it always comes down to step one. It always comes back to step one. And that's the step that we have to take perfectly. The recognition of powerlessness. The recognition that on my own power, on my own decision-making, 
I will eat again. It's a guarantee. I will eat again if I'm left to my own power. Um, so I need a relationship with power. And this is how I'm told I'm going to get it. Um, you know, my disease drove me to a state of complete hopelessness. And I admitted complete defeat. And being defeated propels me into taking action. And that's really it. That's what propels us. Um, the 12 and 12 goes on to say that the, on page 78, that these obstacles, however, are very real. So there's some obstacles that we face. And the first and one of the most difficult has to do with forgiveness. The moment we ponder a twisted or broken relationship with another person, our emotions go on the defensive. To escape looking at the wrongs we've done, Another way we resentfully focus on the wrong they have done us, right? That's what I tend to focus on, what they've done to me. And it's especially true, you know, in fact, if someone behaved badly, right? If someone else behaved badly, triumphantly, it says we seize upon his misbehavior as the perfect excuse for minimizing or forgetting our own right? But I'm not in this world as the arbiter of fair and just. That's not my role, right? So it might not feel fair that they get away with doing something and I have to make amends. It's not really my business, right? My business is me and my own actions, my own heart. So clearly forgiveness though is a huge part of step eight and then nine. And I discovered, you know, a truth about myself. Um, and I'm not certain if it's a characteristic that addicts alone have, or if it's like a human characteristic, but my experience is the longer I avoid owning up to something, the more I believe it's not my fault. Like little by little, I go from having done something that I know in my heart is wrong to being convinced in my mind that I am 100% the victim. And I can experience that even today. Like I can be um, recognizing that I um, need to reach out to, let's say my brother. Right, I have a brother that uh, I look at and I think, oh, you know what, I could do better. I could do better. And I know like that is in my own moral compass that I'm, and where does that come from, that conscience? That comes from God. That's like God whispering to me, you know better, you should do better. But if I delay the next thought that comes in, well, he hasn't called me in a long time. He should call me. You know, I remember a time when I called him and he didn't call him all of a sudden, right? I'm not as responsible anymore. It's all on him. It's all on the other person. Um, in the big book now on page 76, the third paragraph says, we attempted to sweep away the debris which has accumulated out of our effort to live on self-will and run the show ourselves. If we haven't the will to do this, we ask until it comes. And for me, ask means prayer. Because who am I asking for? 
right? Who, who is it that I'm going to ask to give me the will? Well, it's always God. Because remember, we go to God, right? That was my step three, that I turn my will in my life over to the care of God. So if I need to have my will worked on, like, I love Trisha, but I'm not going to Trisha <laughs> to help me with my will, right? I'm not going, I'm not going to any of my friends here. I'm going to God. God is what will help me. Um, so it's a prayer. And remember, it was agreed at the beginning that we would go to any lengths for victory over alcohol, victory over food. And it was an agreement we made. It's actually what we're told to ask someone before we agree to sponsor them. And if you look back on page 58, it says, if you have decided you want what we have, and are willing to go to any lengths to get it, then you're ready to take certain steps. Not then you're ready to put the food down. Then you're ready to get abstinent, right? No, then you're ready to take certain steps. And this is one of those steps, right? And you know, my main problem with being a compulsive overeater is that I can't live with the discomfort of being human without the need to eat an enormous amount of food just to tolerate this living experience. That's what it was like for me before. And step one was the complete and utter misery of living with the food and abstinence without the steps and a relationship with God meant that I was going to have to live with the utter misery of living as me without food, right? Like I'm step one, I'm at this horrible spot where I can't stand the way I'm eating anymore and I can't live the way that I'm eating. And yet I put the food down and now I can't stand living with me without eating. And that's a, that's a tough spot to be in. And basically, you know, what it is, is I'm screwed. That was my understanding at step one. And and then why do I need to do these things? Why it's unimportant? Like, why do I have to make an amend? I don't know, but that's what the recipe for, for someone like me to have a spiritual awakening that changes my personality so that I'm no longer interested in food. It's just part of the formula. And you know, I can only say that doing the steps in their entirety and precisely following the directions have given me the ability to live without eating compulsively. And I'm not just living, but I'm actually living happily, you know? And I spoke with someone today who said, wow, that part about following the directions precisely in its entirety is something this woman had shared with me that she's never really done before entirely precisely according to directions and I actually say that's great news because now you know why it wasn't effective right it wasn't just well it didn't work for me this program works for all of us if we do it entirely right entirely. On the fourth paragraph, it says, as we look over the list of business acquaintances and friends we have hurt, we may feel diffident, shy, 
hesitant, insecure about going to some of them on a spiritual basis. Let us be reassured. To some people, we need not and probably should not emphasize the spiritual feature of the, on our first approach. And on 77, it says we might prejudice them. At the moment, we're trying to put our lives in order, but this is not an end in itself. Our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be of maximum service to God and the people about us. So our actual purpose is not to get our lives in order. Although it might be your motivation. It was my motivation. It's not my purpose to get an ordered life. My purpose, right? My real reason for living is to be of service to other people. That's the purpose. And we learn that the way that we get our lives in order is by no longer living for our own selfish means, but by our purpose to be of service. And that in order actually for me to be happy, I have to focus not so much on actually being happy, right? So it's like the less I focus on being happy, I actually wind up being happier. I can't spend all my time focused on my own happiness. I actually have to focus my time and attention towards other people, towards being of service. And it sounds crazy, but it's actually the truth. Um, you know, and it says here that it's seldom wise to approach an individual who still smarts from our injustice to him and announce that we've gone religious. Why lay ourselves open to being branded fanatics or religious boards? We may kill a future opportunity to carry a beneficial message. But our man is sure to be impressed with his sincere desire to set right the wrong. He's going to be more interested in a demonstration of goodwill than our talk of spiritual discoveries. So, you know, the reason that we, that we don't go to people talking about God right off the bat is not because we're not proud of our relationship with God. It's not because we're embarrassed or ashamed, but it's because if we've hurt them and now we show up there saying, well, it's all good because I found God, they won't really see us as being sincere. And we cannot be useful to other people if they disregard everything we have to say because they see us as crazy religious freaks who are not really assuming responsibility for our part, right? It's like people do a horrific thing and they say, it's all good because I confessed it to God and so I'm okay now, right? And that's not really fair to show up to somebody who you owe an amend to as though you're showing up there with God on your team right? It's not, it's, it's really not a fair way to treat another person. But we can talk about God if it will serve a good purpose. And we use common sense. And really more than talking about God, we need to demonstrate, which means show through our behavior, God's presence. We preach by our actions, not by our words. And the first paragraph then says, the question of how to approach the man 
we hated will arise. It may be he has done us more harm than we've done him. And though we may have acquired a better attitude toward him, we are still not too keen about admitting our faults. Nevertheless, with a person we dislike, we take the bit in our teeth. If you take the bit in your teeth, it means you do it decisively. Not being controlled by your feelings about what was done to you or by your opinions of this person. And it says here, it's harder to go to an enemy than to a friend, but we find it much more beneficial to us. So we get a greater benefit. And remember the benefit we're after is a relationship with power. That's why we're doing all of this so that we get a relationship with God. So we get a greater benefit. We means we get a closer relationship with God when we make these hard amends. My relationship with my creator strengthens when I rely on him. And the greater my reliance on God, the greater my freedom. And in step seven, remember we do the steps sequentially. So step seven was right before this. We learned that hard situations require more faith, right? That things that are difficult for us means that we're gonna have to call upon even more faith. And for me, you know, the greater benefit I find here is that I think about God, you know, one of the names for God is companion, conscious companionship, right? So I find out that a friend is worthy of my trust when I need him, when I rely on somebody and they show up. And, you know, when I'm in a difficult situation and a friend shows up and is reliable, then I get closer to that friend. And that's how it is with my relationship with God. So those hard amends where I really leaned on God and I put my faith and reliance in him. And I said, I don't know about the outcomes, but I trust you. My relationship strengthened. Page 77 says, we are there to sweep off our side of the street, realizing that nothing worthwhile can be accomplished until we do so. Never trying to tell him what he should do. His faults are not discussed. We stick to our own. And if our matter is calm, frank, and open, we will be gratified with the results. So I only focus on my faults. And we call this a clean amends. It's clean. And if I say, you know, if I am going to go to my husband and make an amends for my behavior, then I don't mention anything about his actions or what I believe were his actions that may have triggered me, right? That may have come before what I did. So when I said to my husband that I regret harming the peace in my home when I have been demanding and through temper tantrums, I don't say that I did this when you left a sink full of dishes, right? I leave that part out entirely, you know? Um, so it's like, I don't go to my husband like this. Listen, honey, you know, I'm really sorry this morning for stamping and, you know, and starting the day off in a negative way. You know, when I saw that the sink was really full of dishes and you guys left a mess, no, leave that part out. The clean amend is, I regret the way that I behaved this morning when I stamped around and started the day off 
in a negative, you know, with negative energy. I regret the way that I behaved. You know, what I found out is that amends usually need to be much shorter than what I want them to be. I wanted them to be really long because if they're too long, actually what I'm doing is I'm making excuses for my poor behavior or I'm assigning blame rather than just owning my part, right? When you own your part, it's really short. Um, page 78, the first paragraph says, sometimes the man we call upon admits his own fault. So feuds of years standing melts away in an hour. Rarely do we fail to make unsatis do we fail to make satisfactory progress? Our former enemies sometimes praise what we are doing and wish us well. Occasionally they will offer assistance. Should not matter, however, if someone does throw us out of his office. We've made our demonstration, done our part, it's water over the dam. So again, remember, we're not in charge of the outcome. And I've heard people say before, look, I attempted to make an amends with so-and-so and they won't forgive me. They won't forgive me and I think I need to redo it. No, <laughs> that's saying you're in charge of the outcome. Your job is not to force somebody to forgive you. In fact, it's not even kind to tell another person that they need to forgive you. We don't ask people to forgive us, right? We name our part, we regret our behavior, we make restitution, and we make an amend. We change the way that we behave. But demanding, an, demanding forgiveness is, is, is an unfair request. They owe us nothing. They do not owe us their forgiveness, right? Um, you know, so, I have to tell you, I have made amends before to people and attempted to, and they weren't interested in my apologies. You know, I, I've attempted to make one um, with a former friend um, and, a, and a colleague, and um, she made it very clear. She wants nothing to do with me. She's not interested. Um, and it doesn't matter. Like, our amends are not so that we get a fairy tale ending. You know, and, and some of those amends, like one in particular, the person did not want to hear my apologies. They just wanted me to be different. They wanted me to like, lip, yet less lip service and more action on my part. And over time, that particular person, it was a family member, actually began to want a relationship with me again. The other person has never, has never, but I'll tell you, I have freedom. I see this other woman and I don't have to squirm in my seat. I made the attempt. If she chooses to look away, you know, I, I, I'm sorry for that, I really am, but I've done, I've done the best I can. I've just, I've done the best I can. Um, page 78, the second paragraph says, we do not dodge our creditors. Arranging the best deal we can, we let these people know we are sorry. Our drinking made us slow to pay, our selfishness perhaps made us slow to pay. 
We must lose our fear of creditors, no matter how far we have to go. For we are liable to drink if we are afraid to face them. So, you know, this is kind of good news. If you owe money, maybe you got credit card debt or other bills, other people you might owe money to and you're ignoring the bills, you can actually call up the credit card companies. You can reach out to the other people and you can make a deal. You can make a payment plan. You can, you know, you can make that arrangement. And I've actually, I've had sponsees who did this very thing. I had a, a dear sponsee a number of years ago who said that every time the phone rang, she cringed and she wasn't, you know, she wouldn't answer the phone. And she was telling her kids not to answer the phone because it was always the credit card company. And she felt like a prisoner in her own house, not being able to answer her own telephone. And she called up the credit card companies. She called up the department stores and she made a plan. She made a payment plan with them. It actually says that you can negotiate on good terms. She wasn't looking to cheat, but she realized that she was gonna have to make up some sort of a plan. And I think that's so awesome because and then when the phone rings, she no longer has to hide. She no longer has to apologize to her children for not letting them answer the phone, right? That was a harm she caused to them too. You don't have to be a prisoner in hiding your own home. And the third paragraph now says, perhaps we've committed a criminal offense, which might land us in jail if it were known to the authorities. Maybe it's only a petty offense, you know, something small. And um, such as panning the expense account, most of us have done that sort of thing. Many of us have done dishonest things. And although the reparations take innumerable forms, there are some general principles that we find guiding. And I love general principles that guide us. Reminding ourselves that we've decided to go to any length to find a spiritual experience, we ask that we be given strength and direction to do the right thing. Again, we go to God for strength. We go to God for direction, no matter what the personal consequences may be. We may lose our position, our reputation, or even face jail, but we're willing. We have to be. We must not shrink at anything. So here's the general principles and guides. One, we decided we will go to any length to have a spiritual experience, right? A spiritual experience. What we're saying is that our relationship with God is first, number one. And two, we pray for strength and direction to do what's right. So if you're faced with a tough amend, you're not sure how you're gonna do it, you're like laboring over it, pray. Ask God for strength and ask God for direction. Three, we are not focused on our personal consequences. Remember, we're out of the outcomes business. So we kind of put that out of our mind. And four, even if we lose our reputation or freedom, we actually would sooner go to jail, right, than shrink. And I think about this because if, um, if we're afraid of the outcome, especially like 
having to face some serious consequences as a result of our actions. Um, I had no freedom in bondage of the food, right? It owned me, it demanded everything. I would say it held the mortgage to my soul. It was a rapacious creditor. It robbed me from being a good mother. It robbed me from being the kind of wife I wanna be. Um, it was the worst kind of hell ever living in bondage of the food. And the only end date if I live in bondage of the food is the day I die. Like there's no, this disease is progressive, permanent, fatal. I'm patient, it'll wait me out. So there was no, if I allow food to be my master, meaning I shrink from doing this work, basically I say I'd rather food be my master. The only day that I can expect to be free is possibly the day I die, because that's it, right? And yet, if I have to suffer a consequence of making my amend, my date of freedom will probably come much sooner, right? Much sooner. Um, and here, you know, we're gonna talk about reputation, even if we lose our reputation. What is a reputation? It's the opinions of other people, right? And reputations are not my God anymore. Reputations are not as important to me as my integrity. What you think of me is not as important as what God thinks of me, how I believe God wants me to be. You know, and my experience with my reputation was, um, I had to tell a coworker that I stole candy from her. And I have a really good reputation in my workplace, you know? Especially at that time, I was very much um, proud of my good reputation. I was a respected member of my staff. Um, I had a lot of had a lot of good attention at my job place. I had bosses that, you know, praised me, that said positive things about me that held me up and told other people to come and look and see what I was doing. You know, there was a period of time when the state was in our building and, um, and I was like a model classroom for whatever that means. By the way, I'm not a model classroom anymore and I'm still the same teacher. So reputation means nothing. It, it really, it's, it's, it's not permanent. It's not God-centered. It's people-centered and people are not my master anymore. So my reputation meant everything to me. And I had to go to a colleague who I knew had a lot of friends in the building and who I knew had a lot of people she confided in about a lot of things. Get the picture? I was pretty sure that she was gonna spread the word. And I still had to go to her. And I'll tell you, it was scary, but I leaned into God that day. And when I made that amend, I felt like I floated outside of her room afterwards. I felt like my feet didn't touch the ground. To this day, I don't know whether she told other people. She might have. 
everybody in that building might know. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to me anymore. That's not who I am. I'm not a woman who steals from coworkers, right? But that's who I was. Um, in the fourth paragraph on page 80 says, he saw that he had to place the outcome in God's hands or he would soon start drinking again and all would be lost anyhow. And this is why we're doing it, right? Isn't it? Because we've got no other options. If we don't do this, it's not a matter of if we will return to the food. It's a matter of when, right? You know, the next part of the big book goes into great detail about sex relations and infidelity. And I'm not gonna read all of it today, you know, um, in, the, in the interest of time. And this is a very sensitive, careful topic, but basically sex relations and issues of infidelity are tricky, tricky areas. There are absolutely, there's no absolute rules what we can reveal. If it's gonna implicate another person, we must have their consent. We can't drag someone else in. And if we're gonna tell someone something that will cause them pain and they don't know it about it, then we don't do this. What's essential is that we keep other people's happiness uppermost in our mind. That's our, that's our charge from here on out anyway. And what the section really makes me think of, apart from like sex relations, it's it sort of, for me, it makes me think about gossip. And I share a lot about gossip because um, I think it's a common culprit for many of us. It's something that seems very harmless um, and the person might not have a clue that we've spoken poorly about them. Um, and if we go to them, and tell them, and they have no idea that we've been talking poorly about them, that's gonna hurt them. It's gonna cause them pain. And then it's gonna implicate other people because who do you gossip with? You gossip with and to others. So now you're dragging other people in. And so then what are we gonna do about it? Because we have to address it. Well, for one, remember, amends means to change. So we stop gossiping, day one, stop it. Um, and remember that an amend means restitution, to make something right, to fix it, not to apologize. So how can I make restitution for slander? Say things that are positive, build the person up, if you've torn them down, you know, I can, I can go to the people that I've gossiped to and with, I can apologize to them to tell them that, that I'm sorry for polluting the conversation with negative words. I can tell people that I value their time. This is sort of like my, 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 my um, script right? If I've gossiped with someone, I say to them, you know what, I really value your time and your friendship. And I feel like I've wasted it with nonsense because I've wasted our precious time by talking poorly about other people. And, um, and for that, I, I regret doing that. And then in any chance I have, the people that I talked poorly about, I look to say something positive about them, something true, but positive in nature, right? And, um, 
And what do we do though, if the person that we gossiped with was really the instigator, right? Because sometimes it's like, how am I going to go to this person and make an amend for gossiping with them when really they were the ones who were the gossip, right? They were the one. Now, remember, we put it out of our mind entirely what other people's participation is. We only look at ourselves. And um, we may have to totally ignore the fact that they participated and take responsibility for the ways that we contributed and participated in the conversation. And actually something that I find pretty interesting is the people that I've gone to, to make amends for talking poorly about others, most of them I have found don't necessarily perceive that they were the instigator. So I wonder how much of it was my own creation believing that they were truly the instigator. Remember that over time, I seem to have this shift where the locus of responsibility goes to the other person if I don't clean it up. And I think that may have happened with gossip too. I think I may have been just as much a contributor as the others that I thought did it more. Um, so sometimes it says we hear an alcoholic say that the only thing he needs to do is to keep sober. Certainly he must keep sober for there will be no home if he doesn't, right? So at this point, we stop making our families kiss our feet because we're not eating anymore. My family doesn't really care what I eat. They really don't. I mean, they do because I think they would all freak out if I started eating things that I haven't eaten in years, but they really don't, you know? They don't care if I eat or don't eat. What truly impacts their world is how am I behaving? Am I behaving in a recovered and healthy manner? You know, the alcoholic, it says, is like a tornado roaring his way through the lives of others. Hearts are broken. Sweet relationships are dead. Affections have been uprooted. Selfish and inconsiderate habits have kept the home in turmoil. We feel a man is unthinking when he says that sobriety is enough. He's like the farmer who came up out of his cyclone cellar to find his home ruined. To his wife, he remarked, don't see anything the matter here, Ma. Ain't it grand? The wind stopped blowing. Yes, there is a long period of reconstruction ahead. We must take the lead. A remorseful mumbling that we are sorry won't fit the bill at all. We ought to sit down with the family and frankly analyze the past as we now see it. Being very careful not to criticize them. Their defects may be glaring, but the chances are that our own actions are partly responsible. So we clean house with the family, asking each morning in meditation that our creator show us the way of patience, tolerance, kindliness, and love. So when we make these amends to our family members, and, and I'm gonna talk specifically about to our children, we are to take complete ownership for our actions. And I'd say, you know, the ones with the, that for our children are sometimes very difficult because when we go to our children making amends, we have to be careful with our wording. Um, if I say, you know, um, like I'm sorry for my poor job of parenting, 
my kids might interpret it that they're the living, breathing byproduct of my poor parenting, that they're the human embodiment of my mistake. And that's not helpful. That's not the message I wanna give. So I'm careful about making my amend. What I've said is that I told my children that I'm um, really fortunate that God saved them from my mistakes, that I've made a lot of mistakes and I'm so grateful for God intervening and getting in the way, right, of my poor parenting. And that I wish that I would have assisted God more in his work and that they came out perfect despite my mistakes, that they are exactly as they're supposed to be. And then I clearly say what it is that I regret doing or not doing. And I ask them if there's anything else that I've done that's hurt them. We don't point out their imperfections, right? I don't point out. Um, it says here, the spiritual life is not a theory. We have to live it. Unless one's family expresses a desire to live upon spiritual principles, we think we ought not urge them. We should not talk incessantly to them about spiritual matters. So it's my behavior, my actions, and not my words. I don't talk on and on and on about the principles. Instead, I live the principles. And, you know, in early recovery, um, I made a lot of mistakes with my children while I was cleaning up the past. I, I thought that, um, you know, that every time that they had a problem, my husband or my daughter, my son was little, so it was really my husband and my daughter. I thought every time they came to me with a problem, it was my job to show them this 10-step model, right? <laughs> to find their part in all their problems. So if my husband came to me about his boss, I was like intent on helping him find his part. If my daughter came to me about somebody being mean to her in school, I was going to help her find her part in it. And that was not kind. Um, and, you know, my daughter really wound up confronting me and telling me that she didn't confide in me anymore because she didn't feel safe telling me things because I never took her part, never took her side. I always took everyone else's side. And she was right. I did that. And I owed that child an amend, right? And today, when she tells me things, I have to bite my tongue because I love her so dearly that I want to save her from her own discomfort. And that's not my job. That's playing the outcomes business. So when she comes to me with a problem, you know, what I've learned to do is I've asked her, are you interested in my feedback or just a loving ear? And sometimes she says, no, I know exactly what I need to do. Can you just listen? Okay, no worries. I got that. I can listen. Um, and then I pray. And then I turn to God because I'm looking at her and I'm like, oh, you're going to make a big mistake and let me save you. That's not my job. That's not my job, right? Um, and there's some wrongs we can never write, it says. We don't worry about them if we can honestly say to ourselves that we would write them if we could. Some people cannot be seen. We send them an honest letter and there may be a valid reason for postponement in some cases, but we don't delay if it can be avoided 
We should be sensible, tactful, considerate, and humble without being servile or scraping. As God's people, we stand on our feet. We don't fall before anyone. So sensible, sensible, practical, level-headed. You should do something that is possible. Don't promise to never yell at your kids again, right? Or never check out or always do what hubby wants. That's not true, right? Don't make false promises. Tactful, delicate, discreet. If you're making an amends to your kids, do it one-on-one. -on -one. Same with your parents, same with your siblings. Do it in a way that's kind. Don't do it on a big family outing where you're gonna like do this in front of everybody. Mm -mm. Be tactful, considerate, understanding, caring, and respectful, humble, done with humility, with God's guidance, and not servile or scraping. Remember, we're God's people. So remember, we go to all things as God's representative, right? And then we get the promises. We get the beautiful promises that come afterwards. And I'm gonna, um, you know, I'm gonna stop before the promises because I know the next time um, we're gonna delve into them. So um, with that, I will pass.